Death by crucifixion was the most hideous, the most agonizing way that a man could die in the first century. More than simply killing an individual, crucifixion was designed purposely, designed to humiliate him, to shame him, to torture its victim. It was such a gruesome, folks, and such a repulsive way to die that the Roman government reserved crucifixion only for traitors, violent criminals, and slaves. Cicero, the famous Roman speaker and orator, he called crucifixion, I quote, the most cruel and disgusting penalty. And he urged Roman citizens not to even think about it. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his, his eyes, his ears. But while Roman citizens were discouraged from letting thoughts about crucifixion cross their minds, Jewish people in Israel couldn't escape thoughts of crucifixion because they were forced to watch many of their brethren tortured to death on crosses. It's estimated that during the lifetime of Jesus, it's estimated that as many as 30,000 people, many of them Jewish, died by crucifixion. Crucifixion at the hands of the Roman government. And it's because of their familiarity, the Jewish disciples' familiarity with what crucifixion entailed that our Lord's disciples would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about when in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, he said these words to them. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, as you might recall from our study in Luke just a few weeks ago, these words by Jesus come right after, right after he told his apostles that he was going to suffer and die, having asked them the question of who do you say that I am, and then hearing Peter give the correct answer, you are the, the Messiah of God, Jesus immediately commanded them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And the reason he did this was because he didn't want the people in Israel to have the wrong view of his Messiahship. He didn't want them thinking that his Messiahship was about rescuing them from the oppressive Gentile Roman government. He didn't want them thinking of him as, as an earthly political Messiah. Instead, as a number of Old Testament passages reveal, he was a suffering Messiah. These are prophecies in the Old Testament. He was to be a suffering Messiah. And that's exactly why the Lord proceeded to tell the disciples the very, in the very next verse, these words, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this was the kind of Messiah, suffering Messiah, that the apostles would eventually proclaim all over Israel and then into all the world. But for right now, they were told to tell no one that Jesus was the Christ. 
And that brings us today to our passage, our present passage in Luke chapter 9, which we just, I just read to you, because it's immediately following this statement about the Lord's suffering, his rejection, his death, and then resurrection, that Jesus tells his men what it means to be a follower of his, a disciple of a despised and rejected Messiah who will be killed. In other words, having told them what kind of a a Messiah he is, he now wants them to understand the high cost, the demands of being one of his disciples. And he doesn't sugarcoat it, folks. He doesn't do that at all. He tells them that to follow him as one of his disciples means that they note this, they must, they must join him in being despised and rejected. How? By denying themselves, by taking up their crosses every day, and by following him. Now I realize that these are foreign sounding words to many professing Christians today. Because so often, the message of contemporary Christianity is just so self-serving, so self-centered, rather than self Denying. It's more a message about Jesus meeting our desires for prosperity, for health, for happiness, rather than a message of death to self and commitment to Christ in all things. The truth of the matter is that we don't hear much these days about Christian discipleship. And if we do hear anything about discipleship, it's often presented as merely an option for believers and not a requirement and certainly not a message of death to self. If you hear anything these days about being a disciple of Christ, it usually sounds something like this. Well, you can be a disciple if you choose to be really committed to Christ, but it's not necessary because salvation is, it's all of grace. It's free. Therefore, you don't have to do anything but believe on him and you'll still go to heaven. But folks, that's not the way Jesus put it. He presented following him in discipleship as a paradox While he certainly did stress that salvation was solely by grace through faith in him alone and that it was free, not anything we could do to merit God's favor, he also made it abundantly clear that being one of his disciples was extremely costly, extremely demanding. And he laid out the precise demands for being one of his disciples in the verses that I just read to you in Luke chapter 9. Now, it's important that we understand how very serious all of this is because if you look at these demands for discipleship laid out by Jesus and say, no, I'm not interested in being that kind of a follower of Christ. I want to follow Jesus, but not that closely because I'm not willing to give up everything for him then you need to recognize that this is the only kind of follower of his that Jesus spoke of. You see, he never gives us the option of being a half-hearted, do-whatever-pleases-you kind of a Christian. And so if you outright reject his demands for being one of his disciples, then you are really rejecting him. And you should not deceive yourself into thinking you're a Christian when you aren't. Now, this doesn't mean that our commitment to Christ will be perfect and without any failures or that we'll always be successful in denying and saying no to our selfish interests and desires. You see, what Jesus lays down in these verses is certainly not perfect obedience, but rather, note this, what he lays down is the attitude 
and the willingness of surrendering ourselves to his lordship, which is what characterizes all those who are really born again. The fact that disciples at times succumb to disobedience, that doesn't alter the truth that Christ's followers are characterized by obeying his word. Although our obedience is imperfect to be sure, the basic desire, the basic drive, the basic direction of a true disciple is obedience and it is submission to their master, Jesus Christ. See, it's critically important that we understand that in speaking about the high cost of discipleship in this passage, Jesus isn't laying down standards of commitment for a certain elite class of Christian, those who want to live at a a deeper level of devotion to him than other Christians, like maybe a missionary or a, a pastor. Not at all. He simply gives the basic requirements for anyone to be one of his disciples. In fact, according to Mark's account of this same passage in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus spoke these words about being a disciple of his, not only to those who already said they were his disciples, his followers, like the apostles, but he also said these words to the general crowd of people hanging around him. Those would be the residents, the citizens of Caesarea Philippi, where he spoke these words. And we know this was the case because in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we read this, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them. And so we deduce from this that Jesus had a twofold purpose in speaking these words about discipleship. First of all, to the unbelievers hearing him that day, this was intended as an evangelistic call, a message of salvation to them. And if they wanted to start being his disciples, here were the requirements. And second, to those who were already his disciples, this was intended to be a lesson of the high cost of following him. Peter and the other apostles had just heard Jesus say that as the Messiah, he would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be killed. Now they needed to know exactly what was involved in being a follower of such a rejected and a despised Messiah. And folks, our Lord's words about the high cost of being one of his followers, these are good reminders for those of us who already know Christ because sometimes we forget, we forget that we follow a despised and rejected one and that means that we're going to be despised and rejected at times too. And that necessitates, that requires a willingness on our parts to die to our own interests and personal preferences. So here's how the verses in this passage of Luke unfold. Here's the big picture of the passage. In verse 23, Jesus gives us the requirements for being one of his disciples. And then in the remaining verses of the passage, he gives several reasons as to why we should be one of his disciples. And so this morning, as we begin to explore these verses, we're going to look at only one verse, verse 23. And what we'll see there are three requirements that Jesus gives for being one of his disciples. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll complete the study of this this passage by looking at the reasons that Jesus gives for being one of his disciples. And so looking at the requirements the Lord gives for anyone wishing to follow him to be his disciple, as I said, there are three of them, and they're all related to one another, with the first requirement being denial of self. Verse 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must 
deny himself. Now, notice Jesus begins to address his present disciples and potential disciples amongst the crowd listening to him that day by saying, if anyone wishes to come after me. So what does he mean by these words, to come after me? Well, in the culture of his day, Jesus is simply He's simply talking about being one of his disciples because the normal place, the normal position, the normal physical spot for a disciple who is accompanying his teacher, his rabbi, his master, was to literally walk right behind him in the sense of coming after him in line, of falling in behind him, literally following him. Years ago on one of our trips to Israel, Michelle and I observed this very thing in the city of Jerusalem. We saw a rabbi walking very rapidly. I don't know why, but all rabbis in Jerusalem walk rapidly, it seems. But this rabbi was walking very rapidly, very quickly, while a group of his disciples were following right behind him, trying to keep pace with him. So what Jesus is actually saying is if anyone desires to be a disciple of mine by following right behind me as I lead them, he must deny himself. So then, now we're faced with the question, what does Jesus mean by the words denying self? And it's here that we have to be very careful that we don't misunderstand these words. And that's because the concept of denying self is not the same as self-denial. Let me explain. You see, self-denial is when we deny ourselves certain pleasures in life or when we give up certain activities that, that we enjoy, like eating certain foods because we're on a restricted diet. So self-denial then is associated with self-discipline, with self-governance that, that we impose upon ourselves. In early church history, stories abound Uh, They're filled with individuals who not only confused denying self for self-denial, but who took it to extreme lengths, so they they became oddball ascetics. People who just sort of dropped out of mainstream society and lived in monasteries in the desert. In fact, there's the story of one man in the 5th century who actually lived on top of a stone pillar 70 feet high in the air for nearly 30 years. Now that's one way to live a life of self-denial. But this type of ascetic lifestyle, it's not what Jesus means by denial of self. You see, to deny self is much more radical than giving up certain pleasures, giving up certain activities. It's far more radical than that. Listen closely. To deny self is the distinct act of turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness It means that initially in coming to Jesus Christ for salvation, you're ready to renounce your sinful self with all of its self-promoting interests. It means that you abandon any reliance you've, you've had upon yourself as a good person, as a way to commend yourself to God. In denying yourself, you recognize yourself to be wickedly rebellious in your heart with a heart that is totally corrupt and has no good dwelling in it. And you turn away and you reject your sinful self from running your life. In other words, to deny self is simply to take yourself off the throne of your life a life that up to this point has been ruled by total self-interest, total self-promotion, and total selfish desires. 
I remember when I came to Christ for salvation as an 18-year-old university student. I understood very little about the theology of the gospel. My friend had shared with me, but I, I didn't understand a whole lot about the intricacies of the gospel. But one thing that was very clear to me, crystal clear to me, was that I was disgusted with myself and the way I was living. God had brought me to a point in my life where I recognized that I had made a complete mess of running my life, doing things my way. And in coming to Christ, I renounced myself and said goodbye to my rulership over me. That's what Jesus means when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. See, you'll never come to Christ for salvation until you're literally fed up with yourself and your sin. To be a disciple of his means that you relinquish the throne of your life to Jesus. Self no longer rules and reigns, but Christ does. Now there are times when a true, a true disciple forgets this. And then the Lord has to chastise us. He disciplines us, usually through some difficult set of circumstances. And then we repent of our self-focus and we reaffirm his lordship in our lives. But no one can ever become a follower of Christ who outright refuses to deny himself because Jesus says that denial of self is the first requirement for being one of his disciples. And as the Lord continued speaking in these verses about being a disciple of his, he gave a second requirement for anyone wishing to be one of his disciples, the first one being denial of self. And now the second one being that one must take up his cross. Verse 23 said, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now the concept of taking up one's cross, it is clearly one of the most misunderstood concepts mentioned in scripture. Somehow this thought of bearing one's cross has mistakenly come to be thought of in these days as enduring some inevitable hardship in life, such as a physical limitation or living with a difficult a person. I'm bearing such a cross. But those aren't crosses to bear. Those are trials in life that can happen to believers as well as unbelievers. What Jesus is referring to here is something that is unique for a Christian because he presents it as a requirement for being one of his followers. You see, when Jesus spoke about taking up one's cross, his disciples would have immediately understood that he was referring to what the Roman authorities forced a crucified victim to do, which was to carry on his back the very wooden beam that they were going to execute him on. Now, Jesus uses this very graphic picture of a man carrying his own cross to his death to teach that those who want to be his disciples must be willing, must be willing to suffer and die for him. In other words, in coming to Jesus Christ for salvation, we not only renounce self-rule in our lives, but we willingly place ourselves under Christ's divine authority so that we are ready to accept any pain, any shame, any embarrassment, any persecution, or even death for his sake. See, Jesus is clearly calling us to voluntarily do what the Romans forced their victims to do, begin the death march 
Now, this doesn't mean that as a disciple we have to physically die for the sake of Christ. It doesn't mean that at all. Not all of the Lord's apostles were martyred. The apostle John certainly wasn't. There's no such thing as salvation through martyrdom. But what Jesus does require from those who would be his disciples is that they be willing, willing to die for his sake at any point in their lives. To die for his sake. Now at this point, I just want to pause for a few minutes. I want to say a couple of things about being willing to die for Jesus. First of all, the thought of dying for Christ with all the pain associated with death, that can be very scary and we have to admit that. You see, it's one thing to not be afraid to die because we know as believers we'll be in heaven immediately after death, we'll be with Jesus and nothing could be better than that. But it's the process, the process of dying The horrible suffering that often precedes death, that can be so very frightening. Michelle has an uncle who once told us, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think we can all relate to that. So let me encourage you by these words. You don't need to be afraid of the pain of dying. Why? Because the Lord assures us that his grace is sufficient for every situation, even death. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of suffering greatly. He speaks of a terrible pain in his life. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. And having prayed to the Lord several times to remove it, the Lord didn't. But here's what the Lord did say to Paul. These now famous words, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Listen, there is no greater weakness than the weakness we experience when we are dying. So just as the Lord's grace was sufficient for Paul in his pain, so God's grace will be sufficient for you just when you'll need it. At the very time you'll be facing the pain of dying, but not before. Years ago when I was a student in Bible college, I had read about some of the great martyrs of the faith who had been burned at the the stake and yet in the unbelievable agony of being engulfed by, by the flames, they refused to renounce their faith in Christ. Well, honestly, that troubled me greatly. Troubled me greatly because I didn't think that I could handle anything like this. And so I went and spoke to one of my professors about this and I told them that I was uh, afraid that if, being, if put in a similar situation that I would re- renounce my faith, faith because I could barely handle the thought of having my thumb burned, let alone being burned alive entirely. And here's what this wise professor said to me. First he asked me a question. He said, Steve, are you dying? It was a good question. I said, no. And then he said, Well, when you are dying, God will give you the grace to die, but not before. And folks, he was absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. You don't need to be concerned now if you can handle the pain of death for the sake of Christ because you're not faced with that at this moment. If and when the time comes when you find yourselves about to be killed by those who hate Christ, the Lord will give you his grace to handle it. Now, the second thing I want to mention concerning a willingness to die for Jesus is something that many Christians need to think about and frankly need to come to grips with. And what I'm referring to is that when the COVID virus hit a number of years ago, 
there were many Christians who were so afraid that they might die from this illness that they refused to come to church for an excessive and extremely long period of time, even though the Bible clearly mandates gathering together with other believers. Now, I understand that initially this was a very scary time for all of us because there was just so much that we didn't know at the time, and some people were very cautious, and they needed to be cautious, and that's understandable. But what COVID revealed was just how many Christians all over the world feared getting sick and possibly dying to the point that they were unwilling to obey the Lord on a very basic command, the command to not forsake the assembling of themselves together. So when thinking about the Lord's requirement that a disciple of his needs to be willing to die for him, some of you need to be honest with yourself. Because if you weren't willing to come to church for him under the threat of getting sick from a virus, would you really, would you really be willing to die for him by coming to church under the threat that persecutors might attack the church that day with the intent of killing you for being a disciple of Christ? Now that's something that you'll need to talk to the Lord about and resolve things with him because his standards haven't changed. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to be one of his disciples, they must take up their cross. See, what Jesus is calling us to do is to follow him as a despised, rejected, and crucified Messiah. Something Peter and the rest of the apostles, they didn't grasp at this time. And we know they didn't grasp it because in Matthew's account of this very same passage, right after Jesus told the apostles that he was going to suffer and then be killed, we read this about Peter's response, his unbelievable, galling response. Matthew 16, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what was the Lord's reaction to Peter's rebuke? He turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus called Peter Satan and he told him to get away from him. Why? Because the Lord recognized that this was a devilish trap to try to lure him into avoiding the cross and disobeying the Father's will. And the reason that the devil was able to use Peter to try to set such a horrible trap was because Peter had his mind set only on his own personal interests. Jesus said this, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. In other words, Peter, you're only thinking about yourself. Only interested in how my death affects you. You're not concerned about God's interests. You're not concerned about God's will. All you care about is yourself. You are selfish, self-centered, and self-focused. And you know what? Peter wasn't the only disciple who was caught up in himself and his own personal interests. All the other apostles felt exactly the same way. They all had their own personal agenda. And that's precisely why, after rebuking Peter for being so self-centered, that's why Jesus launches into speaking about the high demands of being one of his disciples. Because if one is to follow him, they must give up self-interest and be willing to suffer and die for him. So I ask you, is that true of you? Are you willing to die for Christ? Think about that before you answer that. 
Because this is a matter of your heart. If your heart is surrendered to Christ's lordship, then there isn't anything you wouldn't be willing to do for your Lord, even make the ultimate sacrifice, which is your very life. Listen, if you want to be one of his disciples, and the first requirement is that you must deny yourself by saying no to self-ruling over your life. But the second requirement to be a disciple of his is that you must say yes to Christ in the sense that you're willing to follow a path that will lead to suffering and pain and possibly death for his sake. But as the Lord continues, he gives still another requirement. Now a third requirement for being one of his disciples, which is that one must follow him. Verse 23 again. And he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Lord says if anyone wants to be his disciples, they must follow him. So what did he mean by that? What is exactly does it mean to follow Christ? Well, this is not mysterious. This is not complicated. It simply means that we obey him. That's what it means. In the original language of the text, the thought here is that this is an ongoing kind of obedience. In other words, to follow Christ, it's more than you make a one-time decision and then have nothing to do with obeying Jesus. Well, I, back here, a number of years ago, I prayed to receive him. I said yes to him, but there's no obedience now or very little in your life. No, to follow Jesus means that we are committed to obeying him as a way of life in every area of our lives, every day of our lives. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus emphasized the same thing. He emphasized that those whom he saves, those who believe on him for salvation, they will evidence the reality of their faith by a lifestyle of obedience to him. The Lord said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Those who continue in his word. Again, he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? They follow me. They follow me. Not they pray to receive me once and that's it. No, they follow me. Now, as I've told you many times, this doesn't mean that true Christians never sin or that they follow Christ with perfect obedience. No, of course not. But even, even the most mature Christians struggle with their own sin and they fail to obey him many, 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 many times. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between a genuine disciple and a pseudo-disciple. It's that the genuine disciple desires to obey God's word regardless of the cost or consequences. Yes, he may fall, but he gets up and he follows Christ and he counts the cost. Whereas the false disciple has no interest in obeying the Lord, especially when it might cost something because he's too consumed with himself. So what kind of a disciple are you? A true one or a pretend one? If you're a true one, then I call you today to reaffirm your commitment to being a disciple of Christ by continuing to dethrone yourself by continuing to be willing to suffer and to die for him, and by choosing to obey him in every area of your life. But if you are a pretend disciple, then I urge you to dethrone yourself for the very first time in your life and start 
following Christ. And you do this by repenting of your sin. You turn from your sin. You turn to Christ and you trust him alone as the one who bore the penalty for sin on the cross. This is the only way to be forgiven of your sins and to be right with God. So the question today, this morning is, what kind of a disciple are you? Jesus lays down the requirements. We don't compromise that. We don't change that. We don't alter that. We obey that. If you've not ever come to him, truly converted, I call you this morning to do that. Even if you've, you've been a professing Christian for perhaps even most of your life, if you haven't denied self, taken up your cross and followed him, you're not one of his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've heard today. Hard words from the Savior, but so true. Lord, and we realize only you can work in our hearts. Only you can bring a sinner to the point where he realizes that he's fed up with his life, that he's messed it up, that his way has been the wrong way. Only you can bring him to a point where he turns from that and he turns to you and in true genuine repentance and faith falls upon your mercy to save him, to save her. So we pray to that end. We, we pray, Lord, as all of us examine our hearts to see if we truly are your followers, that out of that will come some who will realize for the first time they've never trusted you. Maybe everybody thinks they're a Christian, but they've never truly trusted you. And for those of us, Lord, who have indeed followed you like this, we pray that you'll help us to reaffirm these truths because it's easy to forget them. It's easy to get caught up in our, in our own lives and, and issues. Help us to follow you as you set clearly these demands for us to follow you in this passage. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.